Emotional wellness, mental health is every bit as important as anything that can happen to your body. You know who knows? Dr. Deepak Chopra. Fear can be embraced. It should be embraced, in fact. And you feel the fear in your body. That's one way to embrace it. You disconnect the sensations in your body from the thoughts in your mind. But if you don't control fear, it leads to stress. Stress, chronic stress, is very dangerous because it compromises the immune system. It raises your blood pressure, adrenaline levels, cortisol, which weakens the immune system. And if stress is not managed, it leads to panic, which uh, leads to irrational behavior, a lot of which we are seeing right now. And then the perpetuate, uh, the cycle perpetuates. We have to improve the quality of care for people with serious mental illness and addiction. And part of the problem in our view is that nobody really measures the outcomes, particularly for people with, with opioid addiction or alcohol dependence. There's a certain nihilistic approach to saying, well, we, we'll treat, but we really don't expect these patients to improve significantly over time. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. If you care about human life, the case for social distancing is clear. The coronavirus is highly contagious and highly lethal. A threat, which didn't even exist eight months ago, is now the third leading cause of death in America. We keep our distance so our grandparents and our friends with asthma and diabetes don't become pandemic statistics. There are more than 180 COVID vaccines in development. We've never seen innovation like this. Science will bring us protection. So for now, we keep our distance. But we're paying a steep price for it, and not just an economic one. One in 10 Americans has seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days, according to a CDC survey in June. And four in 10 of us are coping with addiction, mental health challenges, or both. We know people are dying. We don't know who to let in, what we can touch, where we can go, it feels like we're shedding jobs faster than virus. Bills are piling up. For some, it's full-time work and full-time childcare. The stress is real. We're a nation traumatized. Some politicians have actually suggested that the mental health strain is an argument not to keep six feet apart, as if somehow more spread, more suffering, and more death wouldn't compound the trauma. Worse still, fewer people are seeking treatment because of concerns about COVID transmission in health settings. There is a solution at hand. More than ever before, you can seek professional help from home. Telepsychiatry has emerged as a virtual lifeline. If you're struggling, and you're not alone if you are, there's an easy way to help yourself right now. Log on and grab with both hands the rope technology has thrown you.
Today's guest is Richard Pops. He's a longtime industry leader and the president and CEO of Alchemies, a global biopharma company with facilities in Ireland, Massachusetts, and Ohio. His scientists spent many years in the lab successfully developing long-lasting injectable treatments for alcohol and opioid dependence and serious mental illness. A lot of people who need injectables and infusions are going without these days because of COVID transmission fears. So Alchemies has expanded its injection sites by almost 1,000 to pharmacies and health clinics, considered lower risk than hospitals. Eight months into an uncontained pandemic, our country is facing a mental health crisis. It is also uncontained. We're grateful to have Richard here today to shine a light on this national problem. Richard, welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you, Michelle. It's great to be with you. So Richard, cabin fever isn't a medical diagnosis, but being isolated at home, distance from family, friends, and your support system can have medical consequences. The CDC released a disturbing study this summer showing that more than four in 10 Americans are struggling with mental health issues. A third of the country is depressed. A quarter of us are suffering from trauma or a stress-related disorder. What do you make of these numbers? Well, it's a national crisis, and it's unfortunately something that we've been tuned into at Alkermes for many years now. And it's tragic because the very conditions that we're living through right now and think about them in, in, in a certain order, isolation, fear, loss of loved ones, economic hardship. These are the, the stressors that contribute to mental illness. And if, if you have a, a propensity or, or a, a pre-existing condition, you can imagine how those are exacerbating the strains. As patients are, are presenting and having new, deeply personal needs, access to care is severely restricted at the same time. Mm. So perhaps the most alarming number in the CDC report was 11%. 11% of Americans surveyed, more than one in 10 of us, has seriously considered suicide in the last month. It's a shocking number. It's a staggering number, Michelle. It's a horrifying number. Now, we all know that suicide is a major national public health issue pre-COVID, uh, most people don't realize that there are more suicides in our country than there are homicides. For individuals between the ages of 10 and 34, it's actually the second leading cause of death. So if you amplify that in the current environment that we are right now, we have a, a serious mental health issue. And it's one that's going to last for a significant period of time, even if there is a COVID vaccine, which we all eagerly anticipate. For people who are suffering, that can seem like a long, long way away. And as you know very well, there's still in the country a certain reluctance to even accept the uh, vaccine, even if it is successfully developed. So I think this is going to persist for some time. It's easy to forget what seemed like a crisis back in 2019. Opioid overdoses claimed more than 70,000 American lives last year. But COVID has claimed more than 170,000, pushing opioids out of the headlines. What are you hearing from your patient groups about the relationship between COVID and opioid dependency? Well, first of all, both of those numbers are unacceptable. 70,000 people dying a year of opioid overdose deaths. That's, that's, that's absurd. And it's something, it's a national tragedy. So many of these patients don't have access to care in the best of times. And the quality of care is incredibly variable across the country. Half of the treatment centers in America don't use medicines. 
under 5% of them use all FDA-approved medicines. So it's a, it's a real opportunity for an improvement in systemic health care in the country. In the moment now, what we hear from patient groups and physicians and our own people is that patients are having trouble getting in front of, of caregivers. Many people are social distancing and not seeking out the health care they need. Also, many treatment providers have limited access of, of patients to their clinics as well. So it's an acute moment, and I'm quite concerned about a, a resurgence of opiate overdose deaths. Whether or not it's being reported in the national press, I can promise you it's being reported uh, in, in local areas. I want to follow up on that theme of the medicated-assisted treatment what the research has shown about the connection between this medicated-assisted treatment and long-term recovery. How can people get it if they also want to minimize their COVID risk? That's right. It's tricky. It's it's interesting in addiction that the, the, the term of art is medication-assisted treatment uh, because it, it, it suggests that medication isn't enough and it builds on that foundation of, of psychosocial or behavioral or other interactions that are the foundation often of, of treatment. But medication is essential for many patients. And there are very few alternatives. There, there's methadone that you're aware is typically dispensed in methadone clinics in urban settings. And then there's suboxone or buprenorphine, which is essentially an, an outpatient form of, of opioid replacement therapy. And then there's opioid antagonist therapy, of which our medicine represents one, where you undergo detoxification and then, in our case, monthly injections of an opioid receptor antagonist that blocks the opioid receptor. What's so horrifying is that how few patients have access to any one of them, and, and, and even worse, how few have access to all three of them. The pandemic is also shining a light on racial disparities in healthcare. Black and brown people are at most risk of contracting COVID, and they are at most risk of dying if they get infected. This is often because of substandard healthcare Systemic racism is a disease afflicting our nation as a whole. And in your view, how can we come together as a biotech industry to address the racial disparities in healthcare in America? Well, I think it's one of the great themes, most important topics that we face right now as a country and as an industry. CNN yesterday, I just noted, Michelle, ran an interesting story about this very topic. Black, Latinx, and Native American Americans are three times more likely to be infected with COVID. They're five times more likely to be hospitalized. And all people of color are more likely to die from COVID. And that's not because they have different immune systems. It's because systemic racism is a public health issue. And we knew this before COVID. We've been living this with our medicines. We've been focused on patients with serious mental illness and addiction. And it's introduced us to a whole cohort of patients in the criminal justice system where the, the standard of care is incredibly poor and access to medicine is, is restricted. So systemic racism, you think about how does that affect public health? Well, in a, in a setting of, of a COVID infection or a pandemic, who has a second home to flee to? Who shares their home with multiple generations? Who can work remotely? Who has access to testing and care? And who's unafraid of accessing that testing and care with, without concern for cost? So you can see how the conditions, the social determinants of health are so critically important and they get amplified in a moment like we're facing right now. So that's all bad news. What's, what's the good news, if any? The good news is that people are becoming aware of it now. 
We've been aware of it because of our unusual position. Most biotechnology companies aren't developing medicines in the places that we do. So we've, we've actually had to build policy responses to augment our medical responses to make sure that the mes- medicines that we develop can get to patients. So I'm hoping now that we can catalyze a, a, a societal response to these inequities in the delivery of healthcare. It's complex. We at Bio recently rolled out our bioequality agenda to promote access to science and to help empower vulnerable communities. We want to build this vision industry-wide, company by company. How does Alchemy's approach diversity and inclusion as a, as a company? Well, first of all, I want to applaud what you're doing, Michelle, at Bio. I think Bio is a great platform for doing that, and I think that, that this will become a, a permanent part of our agenda. And what I'm hoping is that more and more companies will develop medicines directed to these types of patient populations as well. Within Alchemies, as I mentioned, we've, we've been sensitized this to the, these issues for quite some time. And we've been focused even within our own company of building our diversity and our inclusion, our belonging, what we're doing in terms of our supply chain, in terms of, of increased representation from minority suppliers, inclusion and diversity in our clinical trials, and obviously in our hiring and recruiting and promotion practices within the company. You have to, you have to lead by example. We're not going to change the world all by ourselves, but we certainly feel like we can be a model for other biopharmaceutical companies, and we feel like we have been for some time. It's so wonderful. You're modeling that behavior. I'm sure a lot of folks will follow your example. You know, as, as we've discussed, COVID causes higher rates of isolation, anxiety, and income loss. And those can trigger substance abuse problems. More than 20 million Americans are addicted to something, but only one in 10 are receiving any treatment. You've long been a proponent of how we can use technology to do this better. Can you tell us about the role of telemedicine in our national health response? Well, telemedicine as a general topic is is fascinating in this moment. Telepsychiatry in particular, I think, has, has real apl- applicability. Many people in the country, particularly those in rural America, don't have access to a psychiatrist. And so telepsychiatry is, is a really excellent way of, of initiating and maintaining care for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get it. We are deeply involved in helping, I hope, to shape what the policies around telepsychiatry and telemedicine will be coming out of COVID. Because it's not a panacea. We can't just say, well, we can take care of this by allowing people to have telemedicine visits with a, with a physician. That telemedicine has to be augmented by face-to-face interactions, a comprehensive approach to the treatment of the patient, access to medicines in particular. During COVID, a number of regulations and statutory prohibitions have been eased to facilitate uh, telemedicine visits uh, during the, the pandemic. Those need to be made permanent or certainly modified beyond COVID. I'm going to continue to believe we will ultimately triumph over COVID. Yes, we will. But what we, want to, what we want to have then is actually a treatment system that learned those lessons and is even better for patients. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I'm realizing as you're speaking how pivotal that long-acting delivery technology has been to this sort of therapy. I mean, we've come a long way from when I was in medical school and the standard of care was direct observed therapy. So you could check and make sure people were taking right. their medicines daily. Now you can dose them and they can be covered for weeks, if not months. So how has that really transformed? Interestingly, um, 
the psychiatry field has been comparatively slow to adopt long-acting injectables, but it's 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 definitely happening. It's growing significantly over many many years. Uh, I, I like to think in part driven by the, the the quality of our technology, which is embedded in a number of these different products. Our view of it always was that long acting isn't enough. It has to be a combination of, of long acting along with tolerability because no patient wants to have a long acting medication that they don't feel better when they're taking. So it's not just the, the technological approach of making something release at a con- constant rate in the bloodstream for certain periods of time. It's selecting the right medicine, designing it and having the right dosing. But for, for many patients, the long acting injectables are a real important alternative for them. Next, I'd like to play a clip from Michael Phelps, the most celebrated Olympic swimmer in history, who's become somewhat of a TV spokesperson for telepsychiatry. It was October of 2014 that I lost all hope. I was one of the world's most successful athletes. 18 gold medals. The all-American dream come true. But I was lost. I hadn't left my room in five days. I questioned whether I wanted to be alive anymore. I realized that I'm the strongest person I know. But at that moment, I was the weakest. I realized I couldn't handle this by myself. That's when I decided to seek help and work with a therapist. That decision saved my life. You don't have to wait for it to get that bad. Please talk to a licensed therapist as soon as you feel you need help. Richard, as I hear that, I think if someone so admired and successful, someone with 18 gold medals, can be that depressed, maybe others should think about reaching out for help. That's a story I've heard, I hear almost every week. It's amazing how many people are suffering. And from the outside, you'd say, how could that person possibly be suffering given their life circumstances? And when you talk to the patient, talk to the person, they say, look, it's part of the problem. They know by external uh, uh, view, they shouldn't feel as bad as they do, but they do. And that's their reality. And it's really, really painful. So unfortunately, the Michael Phelps story is not rare. It's an incredibly common phenomenon for people with external appearance of everything being perfect are struggling on the inside. What do we do about it? We have to improve the quality of care for people with serious mental illness and addiction. And part of the problem in our view is that nobody really measures the outcomes, particularly for people with with opioid addiction or alcohol dependence. There's a certain nihilistic approach to saying, well, we'll treat, but we really don't expect these patients to improve significantly over time. And that's why for patients with schizophrenia, for example, we see this just painful revolving door between public health systems and the criminal justice system. I mean, we tolerate the fact that people with serious mental illness in this country end up committing suicide or end up being incarcerated because of their illness without adequate treatment. And that's disproportionately affecting people of color. So this is a big issue. And uh, uh, hopefully public service announcements like what Michael Phelps and others do, people listen to them. It prompts them to think about driving for change. It reminds me of growing up in California in the 70s and 80s, and we saw the ripple effect of the deinstitutionalization. It sounded like such a good idea, you know, get people with mental health issues out of long-term care facilities where they would sometimes be warehoused. But then you saw a shift to people being in the streets and the criminal justice system becoming the alternate care facility. I'm wondering, you know, looking back over your career, how you've seen that trajectory change. You're exactly right. A group of us went to, to Cook County Jail 
Cook County being Chicago area. And the jail is a place where you're supposed to be for a fairly short period of time prior to a trial or, or moving to a prison or being released on parole or probation. Cook County Jail is, I think it's on 100 acres or so. It's, it's got thousands of inmates. It's, it's, it and L.A. County are the largest mental health institutions in the country, uh, given the number of patients that they treat. It's an incredibly eye-opening experience to go and see the buses rolling in the morning and patients you know, or, or inmates, uh, detainees get, get taken off the buses and the, the screening for psychosocial, uh, for psychiatric and, and addiction uh, that on, that's ongoing. It's a pervasive component of the, of the patient population. Many of the patients get better care inside the walls uh, than they do outside of, of the walls. The standard of care is so degraded that this is what it's come to. Schizophrenia, for example, it's a chronic progressive neurological disease. It requires lifetime care. And if you care for patients with, with a, a, a attention and with, with good medicines and with other support, support, their life tra trajectory can be completely different. As a single biotechnology company going up into this environment, you feel sometimes overwhelmed. But we've taken upon ourselves to say, you know what, we, we can't just have scientists and then a commercial team that calls on doctors. We've actually had to build state and local and federal policy teams, including community organizing type people who don't have anything to do with our products. They're just there to try to help make the system more friendly for patients to be able to continue to get their medicines. As you say that, I think, you know, jail is a, is a hell of a safety net. It's not really what it's meant to be. That's right. Have patient groups weighed in on telepsychiatry? What are they saying about how well it's working for them? It's interesting. We just partnered with the Harris Poll to understand how people are using telehealth and how they, how they feel about it right now. The punchline is that an overwhelming majority, over 60% of, of telepsych users they agreed that they would not be able to get the care they needed without those services being provided uh, in a remote way. And about three quarters of patients said uh, they wanted to continue the use of telepsych services after the coronavirus pandemic passes. So people are voting um, with their feet. I think that there's an opportunity for, in the psychiatry field, for the standard of care to actually be improved, learning the lessons that we're learning during covid did people express any concerns about telepsychiatry in the polling that you did with Harris? It's not perfect, right? People need to have access to a computer or other internet-connected device. Uh, and not everybody has the same bandwidth or, or ability to do that. As simple as it sounds, sometimes people need a, a secure and private setting to have a, to have a conversation. And depending on your living situation, how crowded or how, how, how public it is, it, sometimes that can be difficult. And then also, as I mentioned, because you're doing this remotely, we still haven't solved the problem of making sure patients have access and, and adherence to their medication. But I think we have to be very vigilant to make sure that it just doesn't prop up as an excuse for, well, look, we took care of these patients with telemedicine. We can move on. Mm -hmm. So Alchemy sits at the intersection of mental health treatment and drug development. And we're seeing a slowdown in clinical trials outside of the areas of COVID. Part of that is because of regulators' reluctance to travel and limited bandwidth. 
Do you think there's a role for telehealth to play in it to advance drug development during the pandemic? No question. And I think that that's going to be a lasting uh, component of, of clinical trial design and uh, operations coming out of the pandemic. And as you know, as we move into the, the reauthorization of the, of the Prescription Drug User Fee Act with FDA, where we, where we set the standards for the new drug review, we're already talking about the idea of using remote monitoring in clinical trials and other digital uh, ways of uh, obtaining data to substitute for the necessity for frequent in-person interactions. Not to, to even get to the whole point of how digital data capture with wearable devices and other uh, uh, things can actually start contributing really important data. So uh, I think there's a, a really bright future for the use of digital technologies in the drug development process. They say necessity is the mother of invention, and we're certainly seeing that in this case. No question. COVID's elevated the discussion around the potential of telemedicine, and hopefully it will outlast the trend of COVID. You've been a leader in the mental health space for more than a decade. So as a final question, I just want to ask you, where do you think we go from here? It's so interesting, Michelle, because so many of the incentives in the biopharmaceutical industry at the moment are for the development of of relatively expensive drugs for smaller patient populations. And we've zigged when everybody else has zagged. We've been developing lower price medications for much larger patient populations. And that, that's harder because there are, there are other generic medicines that you have to be better than. FDA doesn't quite have the same urgency as they might have for an untreated rare condition with no therapies. But the reason we do it is because to be an adult or a human being in this country with friends and family, you recognize just how pervasive these conditions are. Everybody is one or two degrees of separation from somebody with a mental health issue. And that can be addiction, or it could be schizophrenia, or it could be depression, or it could be anxiety, or it could be PTSD. And despite what name you give it, you, you can see firsthand just how crippling this can be for patients and not just the patients, but for their, the people who love them. So I, I, I'm inspired to do what we do, but I recognize that it's not, it's not the easiest thing that we've chosen. Well, it's certainly a noble calling and we're so lucky to have you in the industry and with us here today. So thank you, Richard, for joining us. It's my pleasure, Michelle. And I'm so glad you're here at bio and uh, I look forward to great things. Thank you. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice, or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of the heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. We talked today about mental health and the importance of taking care of yourself and the people you love. So after an intense summer as Bio's new leader, I'm having a staycation with my husband and daughter. While I'm gone, we'll run classic episodes from our early archives with Jim Greenwood. We'll talk about pre-pandemic warnings that went unheeded and the biggest breakthroughs for sickle cell disease yet. I'll be back after Labor Day with all new episodes of I Am Bio.